Chapter thirty six of Policy and Passion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Policy and Passion by Rosa Campbell Prade. Chapter thirty six. Saved. Half past one. As the bell in the parliamentary buildings boomed the single stroke, a shrill, sharp cry echoed through the deserted thoroughfare in which Barrington's rooms were situated. The policeman watching at the corner of King Street had been attracted from his post by a row in a neighboring public house, and the street being quiet and eminently respectable was not a likely resort for night loiterers. Thus, either the sound was not heard, or none cared to inquire into its origin. Presently the door of Barrington's house was hurriedly opened, and Honoria Longleat herself, bareheaded, uncloaked, with wide-open, terrified eyes and panic-stricken features, rushed forth into the street, and gazed helplessly around, not knowing where to turn for protection against some terrible and hitherto unimagined peril. Before her at the distance of several hundred yards lay the river, with the long shadows and dimly reflected lights upon its glassy surface, its banks bordered by low sheds that promised no effectual security. Honoria fled across the road, and cowered for a minute under the roof of one of these, unaware that Barrington, who had followed her from the house, was close beside her. He approached, holding out his hand with a gesture of remonstrance. She uttered a faint cry and flung herself away from him. "'Let me go home. Do not speak to me. How dare you come near me?' "'Honoria,' he said, for God's sake, command yourself. Put on your cloak and be silent. I entreat you have some regard for your reputation. You are laboring under an extraordinary delusion. You have misunderstood my proposal. You need not fear me. Come back and listen to me calmly, or at least let me take you home. Don't come near me, she said again in a fierce whisper. I am not wholly your slave. I can defy you. You spoke too plainly for me to misunderstand your meaning. Every word that you utter is an insult. Stop that cab and let me get into it. A hansom was being driven unsteadily along the road. Barrington stepped forward and hailed it. He placed Honoria's cloak, which he had carried upon her shoulders. She wrapped it round her, covering her head and half concealing her face, which was rigid with scorn, horror, and wrath. Disdaining his arm, she got into the cab without a word. Barrington bade the man drive to the south gate of the gardens, and was about to enter after her, but she leaned forward and said in that low, unnatural voice, of which every word seemed to stab him like a knife, "'You shall not come with me. I will never see or speak to you again. I think that I could kill you at this moment for what you have dared to say to me. All my love is hate. Go!' "'Honoria,' said Barrington, "'I repeat that you have misunderstood me. "'This is not a time to enter into explanations. "'I implore you, for your own sake, be silent now. "'If you are recognized, you are lost. "'I am bound to protect you against yourself. "'I must take you to the gardens. "'I will neither look at you nor speak to you "'since my presence is so distasteful, "'but go with you I will. "'Too weak to struggle further.' She allowed him to place himself beside her, and each drew apart from the other. She, with her profile, turned away from him, shuddering irrepressibly. And he, all his passion sobered, cursing himself for his madness, not daring to address her. 
The driver, who was in a state of semi-intoxication, had not thoroughly comprehended his orders, and instead of taking a straight course on by the river, turned up King Street, and drove at a breakneck pace through the lighted crowded thoroughfare, where, as the cab swayed unsteadily from side to side, the danger of a collision seemed imminent. "'Slower!' shouted Barrington. "'You are going wrong. Drive down Charles Street and along to the Emu Point Ferry. There will be an accident if you are not careful.' But the adjuration proved of no avail. The cabman gave a drunken nod and did not abate his reckless pace. Fearful of attracting observation to his companion, Barrington drew back into the cab and submitted to the inevitable. They turned abruptly into another street, and, taking the wrong side of the road, came into violent contact with a vehicle going in another direction. There was a confused sound of ejaculations and oaths, of grating wheels and plunging horses. Barrington's hansom received most injury. It overturned. The driver was hurled on to the footpath, and the other two occupants flung together into the street. Honoria had fallen upon her companion. The shock was great, and though actually unhurt, she lay for a moment dizzy and half unconscious. Then a hand grasped her arm and helped her to rise, and a voice she knew uttered in low, dismayed tones. Honoria! She tottered to her feet. Dyson Maddox and Corny Cathcart stood facing her. Both looked amazed, horror-stricken. There was no possibility of concealing her identity had she had presence of mind to attempt doing so. Her cloak had dropped from her head, and the light of a neighboring lamp shone full upon her face, still wearing that indefinable expression of terror which had fallen upon it when she fled from the place where she had had her interview with Barrington. In her bewilderment she had almost forgotten what had happened to her, and hardly realized the shame of her position or the fact that Dyson and Cathcart had jumped from the cab with which her own had come into collision. Then her eyes fell upon Barrington's prostrate figure as he lay stunned beside her. The horror and loathing returned with fresh force. She darted towards Dyson and clutched his hand. "'Take me away!' she cried. "'Save me! Take me away!' A little crowd had begun to assemble round the scene of the accident. Honoria had recovered sufficient self-possession to shroud herself anew in her cloak. "'Oh, don't let these people see me,' she whispered imploringly, clinging to Dyson as though he had been an angelic protector. He led her on almost roughly, away from the light and clear of the throng, and stopping a cab which was driving slowly up, placed her in it. She covered her face, and with a deep, quivering sigh drew back as well as she could into the obscurity of the carriage. Dyson bade the driver wait and returned to the spot where Cathcart and one of the bystanders were lifting Barrington from the ground. The latter had struck his head against the wheel and blood flowed from a gash upon his forehead. His eyes were closed and he was still unconscious. Corney, said Dyson aside to his manager, I am going to take her home. Whatever happens, I can trust you to shield her name. God knows what it all means. You had better take that villain to an hotel and send for a doctor. He returned to Honoria. "'I will take you home,' he said gently. "'Do not be frightened. You are safe with me.' "'No one must see me,' she cried wildly. "'I cannot, I cannot bear it.' "'Tell him to drive to the south entrance of the gardens, and you will take me to the little gate. That was how I came out. Then I shall be safe.' 
Dyson gave the necessary directions, and they were driven through quiet streets past the Emu Point Ferry till they reached the large iron gates, a little way below the Premier's house. He then dismissed the cab and offered Honoria his arm. She was shaking with suppressed sobs that were in danger of becoming hysterical. When they were in the gardens and had reached the shelter of the bamboos, she fairly gave way and, leaning against a tree, covered her face and wept bitterly. Dyson stood by, listening in deep distress to the incoherent words which broke from her lips, and which seemed to tell of insult and disgrace. All his manhood stirred in furious wrath against Barrington, who had dared to place her in a position so compromising. That she had been imprudent, that she had laid herself open to insult, he feared, but his faith in her never wavered. Honoria, he said in tones of the deepest tenderness, oh, don't cry so. I cannot bear to hear your sobs. No one, nothing shall hurt you now. I am your brother. Remember that, dear. You are safe with me. Tell me what you please. Trust me unreservedly. I want nothing in the world except to serve you, to comfort you, to avenge you. Oh, my darling, don't cry. Be brave and speak, and tell me the truth. Honoria caught his hand and looked into his face with eyes as searching and faithful as those of a dog. Her need was so great that all other scruples fell before it. I don't want to be avenged, she said very low. I only want to sink into the earth so that my face shall be never seen any more. I have been insulted. I... I would speak, but it shames me. Only it is right that you should know. He thought I was a wicked woman. He said, Oh, I would rather die than that my father should know. Great God, said Dyson, don't torture me, Honoria. I can believe no evil of you, and yet your words, your looks, convey horrible suspicions. Oh, tell me everything. Speak to me as though I were your mother, your brother. A shudder passed through Honoria's frame, but her words had failed her. She stared beyond him, as it were, with her great wild eyes, still clinging convulsively to his hand. Honoria, said Dyson, I implore you to tell me. There's no one can help you as I can. Speak. Never mind. Don't be afraid, Honoria. I will tell you, she said almost in a whisper. I have no one. No one but you. I will try to trust you. It seems as if I could have no more faith in anyone, as if all the world must be bad. I did not know that there were things so terrible. I did not think that wrong could ever come near me. I was angry when you said long ago that I played with fire. And then a veil seemed taken off my soul, and I saw myself. I, who had been so proud. And I saw that he was infamous. That was what I believed to be love. I did not know why I shrank. I struggled, and then I yielded. I wished to be true. And all the time he had wicked thoughts. He would have married me for my money. But now his brother is dead and he is rich. Money is nothing to him. And tonight the mask fell. It was like a hideous revelation of him, of myself. He said that circumstances were changed with him, that it would break his mother's heart if he married me. He said that I must go away with him and begin a new life. At first I did not understand, 
and then I knew. He said I should be his wife before God. I, oh, now you know. And while he spoke I became cold, and the horror grew upon me, and I ran from the room, away. I did not care where. But he would go with me in the cab, and then the accident happened, and you came. She paused for a moment, her bosom heaving, and Dyson said nothing, only hanging in breathless anxiety upon her broken words. It was as though I had awakened from a dream, awakened to find myself upon the brink of a precipice. From the first he made me do things that I did not wish. I thought that he was different to other people. I was playing with fire. I was bold and unmaidenly. I thought no harm would come to me. My life seemed so flat, and I wanted something new. I was craving after excitement of some sort. But it was not that I was wicked altogether. I only knew dimly. I did not think of wrong. I trusted him to be loyal as you, as Australian men are loyal. It is the English who are false, who have bad thoughts. I did not think that there was any more harm in meeting him in the gardens at night than in walking with him by the lagoon at Curlbin. I was obliged to do what he wished. He made me obey him. I fancied that I loved him. I was fascinated. I had no will. It was the evil eye. It was infatuation. You cannot understand, for you do not believe in such things. I came out here almost every evening when the rest were in bed, and tonight he made me go with him to his lodgings. Dyson uttered a hoarse exclamation of horror. Honoria, you were mad. He made me, she said with almost childlike simplicity. I did not want to go at first. I struggled, but he was stronger than I. His brother is dead. He said that he must go to England. He said that he had important things to tell me, and I went. And then... She fell again into a fit of shuddering. Dyson pressed her hand without speaking. After a few moments she went on, taking up her story brokenly, following the sequence of her thoughts. Often I have not known whether I was miserable or happy. It was like a dream in which there was a kind of wicked joy and then hatred and disgust. If you had tried at first, if anyone had told me what it really meant, if I had known, I would have resisted, I would not have allowed him to master me. But I thought that at last I was going to have feelings like the women in books, who lead tumultuous lives, who have great passions, with whom existence is not mere stagnation and I liked my blood to be stirred. I had no mother, no one to warn me, and I revolted against my father. I despised him and was bitter. I thought that there could be nothing in common between us, that he less than anyone could understand what was in my heart. God help you, poor child, uttered Dyson, and in the midst of his intense pity, of his anger and sorrow, a deep joy took possession of his soul. The way in which she clung to him, her manner of looking and speaking, made him feel that she had set him apart from other men. Her weakness and broken confession seemed to bring her nearer to him. He took her hand and led her along the dim road beneath the shadowy bamboos. They were joined and yet asunder. In his manner there was a chivalrous, silent sympathy 
which encouraged her to speak on with an imploring dependence in her tone. "'It seems so long ago,' she murmured, "'and I have changed, as it were, all in a moment. "'And yet, if he were near me, I should be afraid.' "'Oh,' she cried, "'you will keep him from me. "'You won't forsake me. "'Say that you will not let people think ill of me.' "'I wish for nothing except to serve you,' repeated Dyson again. "'You must never see or speak to him any more. "'It has been a bitter ordeal for you, "'but you will pass through it, "'and you will be nobler and wiser. "'You may know real happiness. "'You may know the love which reverences its object.' He paused, fearful lest the tremor in his voice should betray him. "'You will forget all this,' he added. "'It is, as you say, a bad dream. "'The morning light will drive it away. "'Our lives have some meaning deeper "'than the mere longing for passionate experience, "'and you will learn it in time.' His words seemed to soothe and elevate her troubled soul. She grew calmer, and as they walked hand in hand, a feeling of peace and security crept over her as though, after passing through stormy waters, she had reached a haven. They paused at the little gate. "'I came out this way,' she said. "'You must not come further. Do not ever speak of this again. Do not remind me by look or word that I have been humiliated so. I cannot bear it. I must bury it, all the thought of it, in my own heart, and never lay it bare.' "'except when I want to remind myself how good you have been tonight.' "'She glanced up at him with a sudden grateful look. "'And he is going away,' she went on. "'His brother is dead. "'He will not remain in Australia. "'That is the only comfort, that he will not stay, "'that he cannot make me remember always that I have been disgraced. "'If I ever loved him, I will fight against my love. "'I will think only of the horror and the loathing.' I will pray to be delivered from the infatuation. I will try to be better in all ways. You will not say, she went on in a questioning undertone, that I ought to tell my father. I could not do it. I could not bear that he should know. No, no, said Dyson. What end would be the telling him serve? Try and think of this humiliation as a trial which was needed to make you strong. She looked at him as she stood with her hand upon the gate, and the tears gathered in her eyes. "'You do not altogether despise me?' "'Oh, do not ask that,' exclaimed Dyson impetuously, "'when my life is yours, when you know that I have no impulse but to honour you.' He lifted her hand to his lips and kissed it with chivalrous respect. "'Remember,' he said, "'that I am your brother. You may trust me unreservedly.' You must go home, he added. Do not linger. I will watch here till you are safe within. God keep you, my dear. She obeyed him without further word. Her tall, dark figure disappeared for a minute among the trees, then became distinct again upon the veranda, and finally passed in through the French window of her bedroom. End of chapter 36 Read by Celine Major.